Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 173. Bienvenidos, bitches, and buiti binapi. And thank you for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? No, would you believe it, girls? <laughs> there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. And we love her anyway. So much. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at... 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media, even TikTok. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops Patreon. Yeah. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. So are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Robert Ernest Rosier Jr., a black man who was convicted of four murders but admitted to seven. This is not your typical serial killer story, though. It's about to get all culty up in this hizzle. Oh, boy. Happy <laughs> Halloween. Well, uh, 
<laughs> Before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. I'm super busy, super tired. It's the beginning of a new quarter at work, oh, so there's yeah. a lot to be done. Yeah. Plus, uh, you know, doing stuff for the podcast. Yeah. So out. How are you doing? There is a lot going on. Yeah. Businesses are always like quarter one, quarter two, quarter yeah. three, and then like make me have to try to care about it. I don't give a shit. I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> I hate when they when Quarters, I hate quarter yeah. quarterly nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you Lots have an of office? Reports. Do you make a quarter million dollars a day or, or a year? <laughs> you worry about it. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm doing great. I really love this time of year. We are yeah, in a too. place where you know the weather doesn't really change in Phoenix. <laughs> in the no, fall. it doesn't. And, well, it just it just gets a little cooler. It's a little. We don't bit get co- that the, the seasonal change. Yeah. yeah, we don't get that really. Yeah, but we've been like the leaves are falling and uh, the air is that crisp. So much. I yeah. thought I would really hate it, but it's so oh, rad. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and like every season, it's something different. Like, oh, it's changing to this oh, now, oh, and it's yeah. it's it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, for my kids who've never, it, basically, Phoenix is just brown and rocks. All yeah, it's either around. it's like really hot or not so hot. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> that's so, about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I wanted to mention because it's a ho- it's Halloween and there's like Halloween right. decorations. We went all out, but there is a plague of Jovo spiders in what? What are in Jovo the southeast? Spiders? They're spiders that are the size of your fucking hand. Oh my and god! Oh my god! No, they're blue no. and yellow. They make no. giant webs, and oh, no. they're so scary but they really blend in with the decor anyway (laughs) watch out for those jovo spiders (laughs) um all right well um let's get into some listener letters and then um let's see where's our mailbag and then we'll get into the story well hello angels thank you Mm -mm -mm. The angels left us a beautiful mailbag. What what's in that bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Jen A all day. Oh, because that's why and kickback class well, for your reviews. Wait, those are their names? <laughs> wow, uh, their usernames. Yeah, I don't know what their real names I are. I love <laughs> it. Hip hop air horns, y'all. Thank you so yeah. much. And we also got a voicemail with an update on the case that we covered last week on one of the victims. Okay. So. Uh, Here goes yeah, let's nothing. listen to that. Hi, guys. I am a new subscriber, and I absolutely love your podcast. Aww. I was actually just listening to the Matthew Case out in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I actually just wanted to do an update for the story within the story. Alexis Murphy's body, well, her remains, ended up being found. And oh. the guy that they had arrested and actually charged without her body was convicted once, or excuse me, was Pretty much, you know, they, they had his DNA. Anyways, like I said, just wanted to go ahead and give you guys a holler. I heard it and I was like, oh my God, no, no, no. Her <laughs> remains had finally been found. But you guys are awesome. Love the podcast. Love the energy. Love the chemistry. Oh, you guys have a great day. Oh my Bye. God. You oh, have a great you. day, Anonymous. Yeah. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, man. Thank you. Oh, and and I did not know that. I thought I had looked everything up. Beth so. is thorough McThorosons. So thank you, Fruit Loops, Podscot, Fruit Fruities for keeping us, you know, uh, real. Get, keeping it real for, with us. We really, really appreciate stuff like that that is really helpful to the show, like updates. Like yeah. That. So keep yeah. them coming. You know the number. 602-935-6294. Sorry. <laughs> um, I was just speaking of which, speaking of, I was just warming up the old pipes here. We got a new Patreon named Cohen from Australia, Ooh. Ooh. Um, which is so rad. So, yeah, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Michael Jackson in Australia, Ooh. but um, yes, he's the king of pop. So here we go, Cohen. Thank you. Um, and let me do your hair, your air, your hair horns, your air horns before I forget because I'm a forgetful bitch. Okay. We thank you, Cohen. <laughs> Cohen M. There ain't no second chance against the thing with 40 eyes, boo. Cohen. <laughs> You're fighting for your life inside a killer thriller podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good thank you so much, Cohen. And we're going to take a yeah. quick break and then get into the story when we come back. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Robert Ernest Rozier Jr., a former member of the Nation of Yahweh who was convicted of four murders but admitted to seven. 
He claims the murders were ordered by Yahweh ben Yahweh, who was the head of the nation of Yahweh. So you're going to hear Yahweh yeah, quite a bit. Quite a bit. You know what is interesting? This is so relevant because of Kanye West's recent anti-Semitic Oh, outburst, yeah, yeah. And it's very black Israelite-ish. So yes, um, yes. we will get into it. But now it's time for some stats. <laughs> <laughs> I am in a mood today. So <laughs> I can see. <laughs> so Robert Ernest Rozier had a couple AKAs, uh, one being Neriah Israel and Robert Ramesses. His victims connected to this case that we know of are, by the way, rest in power to the victims and thoughts and prayers to the communities who um, felt the loss of these and were yeah. affected by these deaths. Aston Green was 26. Aston was a mechanic. Carlton Carey was 34, was an accountant. Leonard Dupree was 22, was a former U.S. karate champion. Uh, Glendale G. Fowler was 52, was a hospital tech. Kerr Doer, 44, was a waiter. Claire Walters was 36 years old, and Claire was a carpenter. James Lee Myers was 30 years old and a janitor. Lyle Austin Bellinger, we don't know Lyle's occupation, but Lyle was 22 when he was killed. Harry Byers was 68, occupation also unknown. And Reynaldo Echevarria is uh, it, one of the victims uh, that we know of. The victims, Roser was convicted of killing, were Raymond Kelly, 61, a mechanic, Cecil Branch, 45, a waste collector, Rudy Broussard was 37, and Anthony Brown was 28. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Miami, Florida in the 1980s, specifically Liberty City. Mm. And before we get into it, we would like to acknowledge that the area where Liberty City now sits was once the land of the Tequesta, a small, peaceful Native American tribe. They were one of the first tribes in South Florida, and they settled near Biscayne Bay in the present-day Miami area. What became Liberty City was once a part of the sparsely populated outskirts of northern Miami. It was developed during the Great Depression when the Liberty Square housing project began construction in 1934 as a response to overcrowding in the Black neighborhood of Overtown. The growing Liberty City and adjacent Brownsville thrived as a middle-income Black American community. There were several churches, hospitals, and community centers, but the construction of two Two major freeways in the 1960s displaced thousands of Overtown's residents and demolished swaths of the community there, dramatically altering the neighborhood. Yeah, they did this to a lot of communities of color throughout the yeah. United States. When the United States wanted to expand the highway system, they thought, let's just get Drive these, right let's get these the darkies out of yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. And they, they people were displaced, which is a traumatic event. So yeah. uh, shame on the government. Anyway, following their displacement from Overtown, increasing numbers of lower-income elderly and welfare-dependent families migrated to Liberty City, leading to a large-scale Black flight of middle- and higher-income Black folks and other POC folks. They moved to suburban areas like Florida City and Miami Gardens in southern and northern Dade County. 
Miami is a major port and a southern economic hub, and drug smugglers found Florida's long, poorly policed coastlines very attractive for their business. It became a hotbed of illegal drug activities. (laughs) Griselda Blanco, who we covered in episode 28, was a primary architect of Miami's Colombian South American drug trade in the 70s and 80s, and she's believed to be responsible for somewhere around 200 murders. So you should check that episode out. That was a good one. It was. I remember, Beth, when we finished it and you, I saw you in the office and you were like, this was our best episode yet. <laughs> I'll never I forget love the that. story. Yeah. 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 So um, Blanco's arrival in Florida coincided with the Miami drug war and the cocaine cowboys of Florida during the 1980s. Now, this is a pretty important time of American history because before the 80s, Nixon declared drug abuse as public enemy number one. And he was really just anti uh, hippies and black people. Yeah. (laughs) And Ronald Reagan continued it in the 80s. These drug wars, though, they were very public and violent conflicts that involved hundreds of murders and killings each year associated with the drug trade, particularly cocaine trafficking. And we should note that Nixon declared the war on drugs, but Ronnie Reggs made it worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That that, that is a fact. Yes. (laughs) Look into Uh, it. Yeah, look it up. (laughs) Look it up. The armed conflicts were between the United States government and multiple drug cartels. Not all American problems require war, but when the government declares it, best believe there will be bloodshed. There will be blood, like the movie. Yes. Uh, yes. So Miami is very close to the Caribbean and Latin America. If you believe Ron DeSantis, the entire brown and black Caribbean world is at Florida shores and ruining everything. They're taking <laughs> your jobs. Didn't you hear Marjorie Taylor Greene? They're taking your jobs. They're taking your kids' places at oh, schools. Geez. Everything. But there are a a lot of immigrants from the region, and that is true. It's one of the things that makes Miami so fucking dope. Have you ever been there? Yeah. Oh my god. I love the the Cuban food. Oh, and the food, the culture, the, everything. The, yeah. It's a vibe. It's a whole vibe. Yeah. yeah. Um, human beings who immigrate to the United States actually commit less crime than United States citizens. That is also a fact. Also a fact. A hundred percent. And immigration is an important aspect of the economy and life in Miami, both good and bad, I guess. Yeah. The Mariel Boatlift is an interesting contributing factor to the settling of Miami, Florida in the 80s and 90s. Ever heard of it? Um, I didn't until I started researching for this show. Oh. <laughs> Have you heard of it? <laughs> yes, I heard of it, but I didn't know a lot about it. Oh. Um, you know, I grew up during that time, so... Um, I was aware of it, but I wasn't really paying attention. Okay, okay. But basically, from the spring to the fall of 1980, there was a mass emigration of Cubans who traveled from Mariel Harbor in Cuba to the U.S. The Cuban economy was not doing so great, and the Cuban government, led by President Fidel Castro, said anyone who wanted to leave Cuba could do so. No problem. Yeah, because for a while he was like, nobody can leave. (laughs) Yeah, and And now he's like, get the fuck out. Yeah, you could go. Um, And the U.S. government, led by the only peanut farmer I know, Jimmy Carter, uh, and you are not going to believe this, but the U.S. government, a country created by immigrants, 
had a hard time responding to the immigration situation. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, it also appears that some of the immigrants and refugees had been released from Cuban jails and mental health facilities. The criminals that were released, many of them, though not all, were incarcerated for minor crimes. So when you hear white resources <laughs> talk about this, they're like, the yeah, Cubans, they, were they all sent all criminals. their criminals. But yeah. relax. Um, yeah. And they they um, did, they were incarcerated for minor crimes that wouldn't even be considered a crime in the United States. So hmm. finally, in late October of 1980, the U.S. and Cuba came to an agreement. By that time, by that time, 125,000 <laughs> Cubans arrived in Florida. Oh, Florida. And it affected the population, the economy, politics, and crime. Oh, You're really crime. good at that uh, Morgan Freeman voice. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. Voice over acting career. Here I come. <laughs> So an integral figure to this story is a man who called himself Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Okay. The founder of the nation of Yahweh. Yahweh Ben Yahweh was born Hulan Mitchell Jr. on October 27th, 1935 to Hulan Mitchell Sr. and Pearl Mitchell. And he was the first of 15 children. That's a lot of children. That is a That's lot, a of, lot kids. of children. Wow. Yeah. So the family grew up in Oklahoma where they regularly participated and volunteered at the local Pentecostal church. Church. Wow. His father was the minister and his mother was the pianist. All 15 children sang in the church choir. They're like the Jackson 5. The Jackson 15. <laughs> the Jackson 15. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a lot of Jacksons. That's a lot of Jacksons. <laughs> According to his sister, Deborah Vashti Mitchell, Hulan Jr. molested two of his biological sisters and one of his own daughters. The rest of the Mitchell family denies this accusation, and none of the alleged incidents was ever reported to the police. So we don't know the veracity of this claim, but... That's what she said. That's what she said. And I also think that in BIPOC families, or maybe in all families, but I'm just speaking from my experience, these are hard things to talk about. And yeah. uh, if it happened, um, sometimes you are just told to act like it didn't. To shut up. <laughs> shut yeah. up. Um, so Mitchell attended segregated public schools and eventually sought out higher education in the Air Force and at Phillips College in Oklahoma. He routinely worked with civil rights groups to help organize protests and sit-ins in his home state of Oklahoma. But his views eventually became twisted, and he even referred to Martin Luther King Jr. as that dead dog preacher. Yikes. Whoa. Um, wow. Maybe he was jealous. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Yeah. yeah. How come he gets all the attention? <laughs> um, so his <laughs> His religious beliefs also changed and morphed as he got older. Mitchell arrived in Miami, Florida in 1978. In 1979, he founded and led the Nation of Yahweh, a new religious movement formed from the city's Black Hebrew Israelite congregations. And this was just around the beginning of the Miami drug war. Renaming himself Yahweh Ben Yahweh, meaning God, the Son of God. Um, I got to put God there twice, just so you don't twice. forget. Yeah, um, yeah. He thought that black people are the true Jews and that white Jews were imposters. He said that God and Jesus are black. I do believe Jesus was black. 
fight me, and that he had been chosen by God or Yahweh to lead blacks from years of oppression to the promised land of Israel. Just after the group started, Miami exploded in violent protests in the black neighborhoods of Overtown and Liberty City when four white police officers were acquitted in the beating death of Arthur McDuffie, a black insurance agent, Mm. which happened after a series of perceived injustices to the black community. So it wasn't just that. Yeah. There was a series of things that happened right and it's like 2020 you know yeah and i don't i mean yeah you're absolutely right the more things change and i don't know if they were perceived injustices um you're right um yeah so after a series of injustices to the black community yeah yeah so 18 people were killed over three days and yahweh ben yahweh's message resonated with the city's black population and within two years he had attracted a large following so this is kind of what cult leaders do right is they seize the opportunity advantage of Mm -hmm. what's going on yeah so at his headquarters that he called the temple of love oh Mm. ow uh Beth is uh, you okay over there, friend? Oh my God. Uh, so it was the Temple of Love. Yahweh presided over a multi million dollar religious empire. His, you know, if I really, I think if we put our mind to it, we could start a church and be, just oh, be yeah. millionaires. But that's what uh, what's his face did with Scientology. I'm telling you, it's yeah. it's it's big business, ta- tons of tax breaks. Sounds like too much work, though. Exactly. That's why I'm yeah. saying if I wasn't so lazy, yeah, I would totally run a do that. or a church. Yeah, yeah a church. But <laughs> you know what? I'm too busy podcasting. Yeah, fuck that. So his just <laughs> his disciples were familiar on the streets, dressed like their leader in white robes and turbans. They canvassed local neighborhoods, passing out literature, collecting money and selling products. Don't run from the Lord. They traveled together <laughs> in a fleet of buses emblazoned with the name Yahweh on the side. Wow, they got a bus. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there's pictures of these buses too. Whoa. It's, it's pretty wild. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're not school buses. They're like the big Greyhound oh, buses. Oh, for real? Like the yeah, charter buses? Real. Oh, yeah, Oh, with the yeah. plush seats. Yeah. They got seatbelts in those buses. Yeah. Whoa, fancy. <laughs> <laughs> the nation of Yahweh won public opinion after it bought and rehabilitated apartment complexes, hotels, and other buildings in some of the city's poorest areas. They also opened schools and grocery stores and cleaned up rundown neighborhoods. Wow. The nation of Yahweh operated multiple businesses that offered employment opportunities to those communities that desperately needed it. So those are all good. Those things. are good things. Yeah. Yeah. Yahweh Ben Yahweh enforced kosher dietary laws and emphasized hard work and enterprise. He gained considerable praise from some conservative white business and community leaders and black community leaders as well with his quote, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Oh, no. Type messaging. But no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was he was big on that. He, yeah. yeah. And um, I just think of that quote, Martin Luther King's like, how are you going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? You don't even have any boots. If you don't have any or, or any, any straps or anything. Right. right. No socks. Exactly. Nothing. What you ain't fuck? got shit. <laughs> 
Yahweh was respected as a valued member of the community and a charitable figure. He joined the Chamber of Commerce and Miami Mayor Xavier Suarez honored him with Yahweh Ben Yahweh Day. He was hailed as a black role model and credited with driving drug dealers from inner city neighborhoods. And he attracted hundreds of followers in several other U.S. cities. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the things, the list. Those 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 are are good things. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I want to know more. So some members elected to give up their jobs and homes to become full-time Yahweh followers. They lived together in the remodeled warehouse that had been made into the Temple of Love. Yahweh mm. taught his oh, I <laughs> Yahweh, Yahweh taught his followers <laughs> to avoid their birth family. Are you flirting with me? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yahweh taught his followers to avoid their birth families because they were not their quote unquote true families. According to former Nation of Yahweh member Khalil Amani, all of the men were obligated not only to work in the temple, but also to cover a two-hour guard duty shift at night. Khalil said, quote, you worked 16 hours a day, and then with the two-hour guard duty, you worked for the temple 18 hours a day, unquote. That's a long day. But if, yeah. if you're looking for spiritual enlightenment community, like service seems like a good idea, right? So, mm-hmm. but that is excessive. So yeah. the men carried five to six foot wooden staffs, swords, and machetes. Whoa. Yahweh also allegedly directed members to hand over their possessions and income. Um, well, that's a red flag. And he also <laughs> directed members to administer severe beatings to other members who disobeyed his rules. More red flags. Yeah, yeah. Publicly at his temple of love. Oh. Yahweh Ben Yahweh taught peace and morality. He wanted the image of the Yahwehs to be spiritual, well-dressed, and well-kept. But privately, Mm. something else was going on. He called white people white devils and allegedly demanded retribution for insults or historical injustice in the form of murder. Oh, boy. I was going to say he demanded retribution for insults or historical injustice. But then you got in the form, in of, the form murder, of murder and I, you lost me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So Khalil Amani says that the spiritual leaders preaching contained cryptic messages that were understood by members of the nation of Yahweh. For example, the use of the word Azazel, which in Hebrew means scapegoat. Oh, quote, he'd say white people are the new goats. And he said that proof of a kill is to bring back the head of the Azazel. And we knew that the Azazel was not a goat because we weren't in our land with goats. Oh, the Azazel was the white man. So the language was coded. But we clearly understood what he meant when he would say those kinds of things. Unquote. Wow. Another former member said that, quote, Yahweh Ben Yahweh had talked voraciously about killing people. He talked about the hypocrites and they got to die. I just didn't believe it was going to be a literal thing that happened, unquote. When Yahweh's followers moved into the temple, families were often separated. Tight security was established at the temple. All who entered were searched. There are also rumors of sexual abuse, possibly of girls as young as 10, inside the temple by Hulan Mitchell. Mm. Khalil Amani remembers standing guard inside the temple and seeing Yahweh Ben Yahweh leaving the rooms of married women and single young women and girls in the middle of the night. At the time, he thought Yahweh Ben Yahweh was delivering prayers to the women. Oh, my. (laughs) 
Also, according to Khalil, Yahweh ben Yahweh insisted that all the men who lived under his roof be circumcised. Oh, shit. He then made the uncircumcised men pay him $100 each for a circumcision performed by Yahweh himself without anesthesia. Oh, my God. You know what? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. Wow. Bye. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, my God. I don't even know what to say. For a grown human to undergo that type that of procedure, procedure. in that yeah. area is just mm. painful <laughs> sounding. Yeah. Um, and according to ex-members, Yahweh ben Yahweh created an inner circle within the group called the Brotherhood. To get into that group, you had to bring back proof that you killed a white person. Members of the Brotherhood were allegedly called death angels, and they were required to bring back a body part from their victims, often ears, as proof of their deeds. Well, that's fucked up. Oh, uh, the red flags got me. <laughs> they keep really, coming. They, they just, keep coming. <laughs> like, uh, is, there, is there a red flag dispensary machine? I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. So now we're going to get into Robert Ernest Rosier Jr.'s early life. Hit it, Beth! Robert Ernest Rosier Jr. was born on July 28, 1955 in Anchorage, Alaska. Whoa! They got black people in Alaska? Yeah. Well, his father was in the military. Oh, okay. So the family moved around a lot. Oh, wow. And they ended up in uh, Rancho Cordova, California, uh, where he attended Cordova High School and played football. Oh. Interestingly, Rancho Cordova is also the same area where the Golden State killer, Joseph D'Angelo, attended high school. Whoa. Oh, my God. Maybe there's something in the water. Yeah. They're churning out serial killers over there. What? 
what? So Robert <laughs> Rozier was a star athlete who could high jump six feet and seven inches, vertical wow. jump 10 feet. Oh, my God. Sprint the 40 yard dash in 4.7 seconds and bench press 375 pounds. Wow. Which, wow. Yeah. But he was not a great student. And with mm. a 1.32 grade point Yikes. average, <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah. He found himself unable to graduate. He was directed to a junior college where he could take classes to meet the academic requirements to play university football. Yeah. And I don't know what that means, except maybe he um, he took GED classes and passed his GED because I don't know how else he would be able to to go to junior college. Well, um, high school students take junior college classes and then um, for, you know, during their junior and senior year in high school and then they graduate yeah. from high school with and an associate's with, degree. With credits. Yeah. 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 Maybe it was something I, I like just that. not really sure. Yeah. 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 My guess is that he, he went there to take GED classes and, and uh, got his GED. But I don't really know. That's yeah. just my speculation. I got you. I got you. Anyway, he eventually transferred to UC Berkeley to play defensive end, which also surprised me because I thought UC Berkeley was smarty to be like, pants school. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I have an auntie that went there. She's got so many degrees. My mom wishes that I was like her, but I'm not. Oh. <laughs> you got a podcast. You got exactly, a whole ass podcast. Mom, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> According to his coach there, they took him in thinking that he was a diamond in the rough, but he never lived up to his potential. He was in constant trouble with petty crimes. Doing Doing drugs. <laughs> and he was on academic probation. In 1979, um, so I want to say something about this. This is an interesting time in college football in the United States because universities were now integrated, no longer segregated. And universities mm. realized, whoa, these black people are really good at sports. We should <laughs> do everything we can to get them into our program so we can make all the huh. money in the world. That is and interesting. And they put a lot yeah. of effort into this Robert Ro Robert Ernest Roger Jr.'s career to to sort of to float, get him to get yeah. him there and to float him there. Yeah, but he yeah, wasn't the only I one. Yeah, because I believe it was the school or the university that told him to go to the junior college, right? So that he could, yeah, right. So yeah, make, they make a lot. They made a lot of money. So in 1979, he signed a contract with the NFL St. Louis Cardinals, but he didn't last long in the league. Surprise. He was cut after just six games with the Cardinals. The next year, he played in the Canadian Football League for the Hamilton Tiger Cats and mm. the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. But while living in Canada, Rozier allegedly got in trouble for writing bad checks. Uh oh, he got one more chance at the NFL with the Oakland Raiders. Ooh, the bad boys of the of the the Raiders from the eighties <laughs> and nineties, um, and but he only lasted two weeks with the team before he got bounced. Mm. Uh, so Bummer. now we're gonna get into the timeline, man. Now we're going to get into the timeline. What do you got for us, Beth? In the early 1980s, Rozier turned up in Miami, Florida. And after a series of petty crimes, he joined the Nation of Yahweh. He served a six-month prison sentence and then moved into the temple full-time, changing his name to Neriah Israel, meaning child of God. He later said that he often served as Yahweh's chief enforcer in the Brotherhood. 
According to court records, as Yahweh bin Yahweh's power and influence grew, his teachings became black supremacist and more violent. He prophesied a war between the black and white races and called white America a country cursed by God, Yahweh, that harbored God's enemies. Rozier later said that he was mesmerized into violence by Yahweh bin Yahweh, claiming that he was ordered to kill by a, quote, very intelligent Hannibal Lecter, unquote, Whoa. who claimed he was God. Quote, it was hammered into us 15 to 16 hours a day about men being lynched and women being smashed down and their babies being torn open. Isn't that how they trained the Marines by dehumanizing the enemy? Unquote. Interesting. Um, yeah. I will say, though, that all those things he described are things that white that Americans yeah. have done. Um, right. But not, you know, Yahweh Ben Yahweh was generalizing uh, and and making them hate white people. Right. Yeah. He was infl- yeah. In, inflaming. Um, yes. Uh, their their uh, sentiments or. Oh, yeah. Their, their anger. Yes. Really. About yeah. about these atrocities that did happen. Right. And then just making them. Hate all white people. Right, 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 right. Um, hating all of their oppressors, I guess, yes. is um, how how I would characterize it. Uh, so Yahweh taught that one day his group would chase white men, whom he referred to as white devils, from the face of the earth by killing them. He also directed the killings of white people as retribution for 400 years of oppression and for specific acts of alleged police brutality against black people, which were occurring at the time and to this day. Yeah. On November 12, 1981, Aston Green, 26, a mechanic and former member of the Nation of Yahweh, was found murdered and beheaded. Uh-oh. Yeah. He'd recently defected due to Yahweh Ben Yahweh's increasing obsession with dominance and control and his claim that he was the son of God and the Messiah. Ex-members later said that Aston was beaten on Yahweh Ben Yahweh's orders and then taken to a rock quarry where he was beheaded. Do you describe the beheading uh, in in the story? Do I? Yeah. No. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> I really like that part. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a very sick fuck. But the beheading, the the, I guess it took a long time to behead him to cut his head off and yeah the stories are like dozens of slashes it took oh, to get his head off um anyway Yikes. i'm a sick person i'm sorry so anyway at the time of his murder green was living with another yahweh dissident carlton Carey. following green's death carlton and his wife mildred banks went to the local police to report their suspicions about the yahweh followers two days after green's body was found two hooded gunmen ambushed the couple in their home Mildred was shot in the chest and stabbed in the neck, but she survived. Wow. Carlton died from multiple gunshot wounds. According to ex-members on September 17, 1983, Leonard Dupree, 22, a former U.S. karate champion from New Orleans, was openly challenged by Yahweh to fight one of the temple's members, a martial arts expert. And then in front of about over three dozen Yahweh members, Dupree quickly knocked out the Yahweh member. Yahweh Ben Yahweh then ordered everyone in the room to attack Dupree, and he was beaten to death. Yahweh made everyone, including children, strike Dupree's lifeless body. He wanted them all to be complicit in the crime, and his body was never found. 
Wow. Then in 1986, the killings ramped up. Yay. Between April and October, random white people were murdered in Miami, and most of the victims had one or both of their ears cut off. <laughs> the spree began in April 19, 1986, when Glendale G. Fowler, 52, a hospital technician, and Kurt Doer, 44, a waiter, were stabbed to death in their apartment. Mm. Rozier later confessed to these murders, but said Yahweh told him that he hadn't brought back a body part, so he wasn't in the Brotherhood yet. What? Yeah. I did all this, and I can't be in the I club? I still can't be in the Brotherhood? What? Okay. I'm out. <laughs> I <Yeah>. quit. <laughs> but then again, uh, Rozier's prospects and options may have been... Very slim. Yeah, he didn't. At that he point. didn't have a lot of options. Yeah, yeah. so he might have not seen a different way. On May 18th, 1986, about 20 Nation of Yahweh members, mostly women and children, were going door to door preaching when they were attacked by some neighborhood kids. Two nights later, Molotov cocktails were thrown through the windows of some of the houses in the neighborhood, burning a half dozen homes on May 20th, 1986. Two children were badly burned. Yikes. Mm. On May 22, 1986, a 36-year-old unemployed carpenter named Claire Walters was attacked while he was sleeping in an abandoned hotel on Biscayne Boulevard. Since he'd lost his job, he'd lost his home as well. The man was stabbed, his throat slashed, and his left ear cut off. Mm. On July 21st, James Lee Myers, 30, a janitor, was also stabbed to death on the same street. His ear had been slashed, but not severed. Then on September 5th, another man was attacked. Lyle Austin Bellinger, 22, who was unemployed and unhoused, was stabbed to death also near Biscayne Boulevard. On the same day, Raymond Kelly, 61, a mechanic, was found murdered outside of the TP lounge in South Miami. He was found in the backseat of his car, stabbed to death. Hmm. He was sprawled out as if he'd fallen asleep, his legs hanging out of the open rear door. He'd been stabbed multiple times and both of his ears had been cut off. One Whoa. of the ears was found outside of the car and the other one was missing. I can imagine this was a very scary time for residents in Miami. In this area. Yeah. yeah. Rozier later confessed to Raymond Kelly's murder, saying that he'd committed it with another Yahweh. He'd apparently cut one of the man's ears off, then dropped it. Oopsies. Couldn't find it. So then he cut the other one off to oh, take geez. back to Yahweh Ben Yahweh. What wow. a dummy. Wow. <laughs> On September 20th, 1986, Cecil Branch, 45, a waste collector known as Big Man, was stabbed to death. He'd been stabbed more than two dozen times, Whoa. and the top of his right ear had been cut off. Police found him face down on the floor of his house, bound and gagged with strips of bedsheets. On October 1st, Harry Byer, 68, an unhoused man, was stabbed to death on a park bench at Legion Park in Bis on Biscayne Boulevard. His left ear had been cut off. Nine days later, Reynaldo Echevarria was also stabbed to death. In October of 1986, the Nation of Yahweh purchased an apartment complex in Opalanca, a city in the northwest Miami-Dade County, six miles from the Temple of Love. Ow. Chicka bow bow. Bow, chicka bow bow. The apartments had been condemned and the group was going to fix them up. The problem is that people still live there. Whoa, wait, this yeah. is unusual for 
people of color to gentrify other people of color in the 80s. Yeah. So that's, well, they, that's what these people were doing, though. Yeah. That's what they always were doing. Yeah. Were fixing up neighborhoods. Yeah. They were fixing up neighborhoods, but people already lived there. Did they give yeah. all of them free places to live? Um, I don't know. Anyway, just before noon on Tuesday, October 28th, 1986, two white limousines, several cars and the Yahweh buses pulled up to the rundown apartment complex. About 75 Yahwehs descend on the apartments to clean out the building, and they're going to do whatever it takes to evict anyone who won't leave. They brought large containers and were just emptying out apartments, regardless of whether someone was living there or not, which is fucked up. Fuck you, Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. This turned into a tense two-day standoff with 22 Yahweh members standing guard with six-foot-long wooden staffs and walkie-talkies. Two residents were defiant and got into a confrontation with the Yahwehs after they entered one of the men's apartments and attempted to remove a refrigerator. The men struggled with the Yahwehs until they got the refrigerator away from the sect members. On the second day of the standoff, police were called in when shots were fired. Sometime after midnight, a green car entered the complex. There was a confrontation and two men were shot. The victims were Rudy Broussard, 37, and Anthony Brown, 28. These were the two men who had gotten into the confrontation with the Yahweh members and struggled over the refrigerator. Mm. Rudy Broussard died at the scene. Anthony Brown was heard pleading for his life as he tried to escape, and he was shot once in the back, then three more times in the head. Mm. He died two hours later at Jackson Memorial Hospital. The green car was impounded with several white robes in the back seat. At the scene, Metro-Dade police found a man hiding in a field close by. He was wearing the familiar white turban worn by Yahweh members. Two weapons had been disposed of right near where he was hiding. One of them was the murder weapon used to kill Broussard and Brown, and the other weapon was Raymond Kelly's gun from the murder a month before in South Miami. Whoa, got him. The fingerprints of the man police apprehended in Opalaka were compared to fingerprints lifted from Raymond Kelly's car. They were a match. Robert Rozier was identified as the man at the scene of the murder in possession of the guns and whose fingerprints had been left at the scene of Raymond Keller's murder. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth? Law enforcement had been suspect of the Nation of Yahweh for years. Mm. The group first came on their radar when Aston Green and Carlton Carey were murdered back in 1981, but the case lay mostly dormant until the Delray Beach firebombing. What? Firebombing? That- yeah, the the Molotov cocktails. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> whoa, whoa. That's <laughs> really intense. Did we talk about that? Okay, so after Opalaka, Yahweh Ben Yahweh became aware that he was under scrutiny. He retained a high-powered lawyer, Ellis Rubin, who created a media blitz. By the way, somebody on Twitter reached out to us because we talked about a blitz. Blitz, And yeah. what the word meant. Let me go to uh-huh. my, let me go to our menchies. And blitz is from the German blitzen, meaning flash or lightning. Oh, um, okay. So a media blitz. And thank you, by the way, that was from Tracy on Twitter. All right. Thank uh, you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. So he started giving interviews on radio and television and inviting people into the temple and his private office. Ooh, it sounds like Handmaid's Tale. Um, <laughs> like, the, right? Because uh, they're like, Serena, we want you to be the ambassador for our great Gilead. They offered the sects help in patrolling South Florida synagogues to deter increasing anti-Semitic violence. The synagogues declined. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, like, are you surprised? Uh, no, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Neriah Israel, a.k.a. Robert Rozier, was charged with involvement in a number of crimes, including the Broussard, Brown, and Kelly murders. The Yahwehs insisted that Rozier acted alone, that he was just a psychopathic serial killer using the Temple of Love as a cover. Hmm. Then Yahweh Ben Yahweh called a press conference and announced publicly that he was excommunicating Robert Rozier from the nation of Yahweh, claiming that Rozier had acted on his own. Oh, they didn't. He didn't want the smoke. Nope. Uh, nope. So <laughs> now we're going to get into the trial. So it was at this time that Robert Rozier cut a deal with the state. Some people have speculated that this was a direct result of the excommunication and his perception that Yahweh bin Yahweh had left him holding the bag. Rozier gave authorities detailed descriptions of the crimes committed during his time as a Yahweh and claimed that they were ordered by Yahweh bin Yahweh himself. Hmm. He was taken out of the state of Florida's custody and put into federal protection. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murders of four people, Raymond Kelly, Cecil Branch, Rudy Broussard, and Anthony Brown, but confessed to seven murders total. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison in exchange for his testimony against Yahweh ben Yahweh. That's not a lot of time for that many bodies. Murders, yeah. Uh, Wow, 22 joints. So Vanita Mitchell, Yahweh ben Yahweh's daughter, has made claims that Rozier was a murderer before he arrived at the Temple of Love. Oh, and that Rozier came to the Yahweh's to hide out. Quote, Robert Rozier is a paid liar. The government paid him and others to lie. They received money to lie, to testify against Yahweh ben Yahweh. The murders happened with Robert Rozier himself. Before he came to the nation of Yahweh, he had already killed several men. Yahweh ben Yahweh never gave him orders. He never gave those orders, and that was all made up. They told him to say that, and he did, unquote. Well, that's a lot of energy towards, um, you know, trying to, trying to take the heat away from Yahweh yeah. ben Yahweh. Yeah, it is. But Rozier and the chief prosecutor, assistant U.S. attorney Richard Scruggs, apparently hated each other. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Scruggs said that he would never pay Rozier. Quote, not only did I not pay him, I couldn't speak to him. Unquote. Wow. Trudy Novicki, the other attorney working on the case with Scruggs, is the one who had to deal with Rozier. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, you know, uh, I guess prosecutors don't get to pick their clients, right? No, so, they don't. Yeah. Uh, Scruggs says Rozier was a con man, but that he, quote, wasn't violent that we saw. If he's killed before and was a murderer before, those people would have to tell me who did he murder and where were those cases? If I could have found something that he had done and he had had murdered someone else coming to the Yahweh's that wasn't covered by that proffer. Okay. Smart people work. It's a legal, legalese. Yeah. Oh, okay. Legalese. Uh, that proffer, he would have gotten life in prison. I would have prosecuted him myself, unquote. Additionally, Scruggs said he wasn't the only witness. Quote, we had a number of people, including Yahweh's own sister, Jean. Mm-hmm. We had a whole family, the Alberts, and a guy named Michael Mathis testified. I can use their names now because they went off into the witness protection program, so they didn't get killed. Whoa. Wow. You could get rid of Rozier and still convict Yahweh ben Yahweh, unquote. Okay. Scruggs trying to set the record straight. 
Mm -hmm. And by 1990, there was substantial cause to base a 25-page federal indictment on Yahweh Ben Yahweh and 15 co-defendants. So Yahweh Ben Yahweh and multiple members of the Brotherhood were arrested and tied to 14 murders. The trial got underway in federal court in Fort Lauderdale on January 2nd, 1992. The defendants were charged with racketeering and conspiracy for murder, arson, and extortion. Now, in a weird side story, on February 21st, 1992, Scruggs' secretary, Pamela Crumpler, was shot to death at the front door of her Dade County home. Whoa. According to Scruggs, the following Monday, Yahweh came to him in the courtroom and said, quote, Richard, I didn't do this one, unquote. And the way that he said it, Scruggs believed him. Police later determined that it was a robbery gone wrong. Huh. I think it's interesting, though, that he said, Richard, I didn't do this one. Yeah. And uh, Scruggs believed him. <laughs> yeah. Is another yeah. interesting. Like, well, <laughs> he might have done those other ones, but, but I don't think he did this one. <laughs> not this one. <laughs> so back in trial, Rozier testified that, quote, we did everything from driving a bus to killing someone if necessary, unquote. He explained that he was a death angel for Yahweh and that after a death angel would commit a murder for Yahweh, they would bring back a piece of the victim's ear to prove that they had done it. And after months of testimony from more than 100 witnesses, the jury deliberated for five days. Then on May 28, 1992, they reached a decision. Yahweh ben Yahweh was found guilty of racketeering conspiracy. A RICO case. Mm -hmm. Six of his followers were also convicted of racketeering conspiracy charges. Seven others were acquitted of all charges. The jury deadlocked on two of the other defendants, so the judge declared a mistrial for those. Immediately after the federal trial, the state filed first-degree murder charges against Yahweh and three other defendants in the death of Cecil Branch. The prosecution alleged that Yahweh ordered the killing after Branch confronted and knocked down a female Yahweh. Prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. The state's key witness was Robert Rozier, who admitted to participating in the murder of Branch. But on Thursday, December 17, 1992, Yahweh Ben Yahweh and his three followers were acquitted in Branch's death. Yahweh was sent back to federal prison to serve out his 18-year sentence. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Oh, I'm dying to know, Beth. (laughs) (laughs) Residents of the Opalaka Apartments won in court when a judge ruled that the sect had waged a campaign of extortion and terror against them. 
the nation of Yahweh had to sell one of their properties to pay the judgment of almost $1 million. Whoa. After 10 years in federal prison, Rozier was released in 1996 under a new identity, Robert Ramesses. In the Witness Protection Program, he lived in Washington, but at some point he was kicked from the program for failing to follow the rules. Um, and we've met people f- who have participated in the Witness Protection Program at Con- yeah. CrimeCon, um, yep. and they do have strict rules. So Roser yeah. said it was because he left Washington State for California to be with his dying mother. He lived quietly in California until 1999 when he was arrested for felony check fraud for passing bad checks in El Dorado County, California. There were 27 checks in all, totaling $2,200. So a lot of checks, not that much money. And I think he was, you know, buying food and um, incidentals and stuff like that. Oh, boy. During the police interview, he volunteered that he'd been in the witness protection program. And then the story was out and his past was used against him in court. Oh, my God. There's that 1.3 GPA poking its little head out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like he, he should have kept his mouth shut about yeah. that. Oh. But I think he thought it would help him. Oh. Like, hey, I'm in the witness protection program. Yeah, like, you can't do anything to me. But na 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 Billy Goats. Yeah. Yeah. Rozier was found guilty for check fraud, but because of the three strikes rule, he was sentenced to twenty five years to life. So he got more time for check fraud than he got for murder. That's wild. But crazy. But uh wow. Happens all the time. It does. Uh so he is currently serving time in Mule Creek State Prison. Earlier this year, he was denied parole, and his next parole hearing is scheduled for 2027. Wow. Hmm. In September 2001, after serving 10 years, Yahweh Ben Yahweh was released on parole. He moved into a four-bedroom home in Miami-Dade County, owned by the Yahwehs, but his activities were strongly restricted, and he was prohibited from reconnecting with his old congregation. At some point, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he died on May 7, 2007, at the age of 71. He blamed the government for giving him cancer. <laughs> um, well, I've heard a lot of, I've heard, I've, that is a black conspiracy. <laughs> the, I mean, they're, they're giving yeah. us cancer from everything. Um, yeah. Loophole, you, yeah. Well, you know, the Tuskegee. Or t- exactly. That, yeah. Tuskegee yeah. experiments. Uh, yeah. All of it. Um, So there are people who still follow Yahweh Ben Yahweh's teachings and who maintain his innocence. One of the men who was tried and acquitted of racketeering conspiracy with Yahweh is Maurice Simonette. Still, Yahweh, you may have seen Maurice standing behind Donald Trump at political <laughs> rallies, waving his blacks for Trump's side. No! Red flag. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know exactly who that man is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> According to Simonette, Yahweh Ben Yahweh told him in 1984 that Trump was going to run for president one day and Simonette needed to support no. him, which doesn't make any oh, fucking sense. <laughs> if he, you know, if he thought uh, white people were white devils, why would, what the why fuck? would he want to support first, first of all, any white person? Right. Second, Trump in particular. Well, Why? You know, you know what? <laughs> it when, makes no fucking sense. In the 80s, I mean, Trump was... Um, He's always been gross. He, he, He's gross. always been gross. Right. But the the wealth and opulence was something gross. that black people really were like, 
I would love that. You know, and even guess. though it's gross. Yeah. Um, it's gross. I would yeah. love that. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing I could think of. I Him don't know. His fucking gold toilet. I got nothing. Yeah, like he's got gold, everything. Black people love gold. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Simonette also said, quote, I've known these stories for years that Yahweh ordered me to tell the guys to do it. I know I never did that. The thing is that Rozier was the one that said I gave the instructions, but then he admitted it was a lie. Okay. The whole thing about the white devils was all Rozier. He was the only witness to that part of the situation, unquote. Huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I buy that, but now we're going to get into what we, (laughs) our takeaways and what we believe made these people snap. So I guess I'm going first this week. Yep. I think this is just a wild story. Yeah. Um, There are a couple things that came up for me in my research, including the notions of reverse racism. And mm-hmm. uh, which is a myth, by the way. Um, and it feels like it's all racism, it's all racism. But it feels like a good time to mention that anyone is capable of bigotry and prejudice against another human being for their race. However, in the context of the last 450 years of white supremacy, basically, it's not really an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. The history is it's huge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it also seemed to bother the mostly white sources I consulted that the black members of the religious group could possess such anger and hatred and resentment against white people. I mean, their first thing was not all white people are bad. And that's. <laughs> if you have to say that and you're white, then you need to take a, a look at the mirror. When you consider the experiences of these people of color, so these, Rosier was born in the in like the 50s or 60s, and um, just imagine being an Amer- a black American at that time in America. When you consider their experiences, to me, it makes a hundred percent sense why they would have those feelings. And I'm yeah. not condoning murder or theft or violence because that really just makes you as bad as your oppressor. But it is an explanation and not an excuse. Yeah. Um, I understand the anger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And also sources talked about how bad the crime was in Miami at the time. And I um, heard uh, and read statements like, why, why would they live there? Why can't they just leave? (laughs) Mm. Why don't they? These are people who don't understand poverty. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't just leave. So I thought that that was stupid and I wanted to call it out. Also, Rosemary played football and CTE and Tua Tua Tagalua. I don't know his last name very well, but the um, football player who in four days had two head bangings. He got his bell rung twice in four days. Did you see his hands and his body like seize up like. Oh, my God. It was alarming and scary. And so anyway, we know that football is a dangerous sport. And I wonder if CTE was a contributing factor in Robert Ernest Rozier's aggression or um, wanting to kill um, being okay with it. (laughs) Yeah. And also the poor grades. What do you got, Beth? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I agree. This is a super wild story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and, uh, it it was kind of difficult to corral all of the information because there was a lot out there. Yeah. 
Um, and we just barely touched on it. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a two-parter. Yeah, if you want to know more, check out our show notes Mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot more to the story. Yeah, and I have to say, as terrifying as it is for white people to contemplate a group of black folks targeting white folks for murder, Mm -hmm. and we've covered two of these type of cases that I can That's right, the zebra murders. Mm -hmm. And this one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but it's rare. Yeah. Um, yes. But black people have been targeted for hundreds of years and still have to contend with this kind of shit today. Yes. From white supremacists. Oh. So think about that. Please. <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, the, they say that um, the most dangerous place for a black person to live is in a white person's imagination. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? That's true. And the idea of that, I, I totally get it. it is It is scary that, a, that a, somebody... Right. Right, but just flip it exactly and imagine yes yeah. thank you every day I love you Beth yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now why Rozier did this um I think he was a lo- he was lost in a drift mm-hmm. uh looking for direction yeah and he found it with Yahweh Ben Yahweh mm-hmm. um and it's clear to me that this was this was a cult oh yes um it had so many of the characteristics like uh, when you were talking about all the red flags yeah um like the people were separated from their birth families check they were separated from society and isolated via their clothing culture name changes stuff like that yeah check 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 they had a polarizing us versus them mentality Mm -hmm. families within the group were often separated so they're they're isolating people all over the place yeah people were punished for not obeying Mm -hmm. their leader was supposed to be god and not to be questioned red flag yeah members were expected to devote in ordinate amounts of time to the group and there was sleep deprivation right 18 hour work days fuck (laughs) no (laughs) i can barely stand eight (laughs) (laughs) they were also hyper focused on making money for yahweh ben yahweh they had shit tons of money they did they were very but they did not you know the people didn't have that yahweh ben yahweh had that yeah For his yeah. buses yeah. and buildings. And probably gold. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, as much as this has been presented in some media sources as a he said, she said type of situation, because there's a lot of that in the, the stories. Right. Yeah. Like, Rozier says this, yeah. but Yahweh's followers say that. Yeah. Um, and I didn't see that happen. That's not true. Yeah. 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 There are enough ex-members who have come forward to, to verify right. Rozier's account. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's clear that Yahweh Ben Yahweh was running a cult mm-hmm. and he was complicit. Yeah, um, I agree. And it's a shame because really uh, some of the things that he did for his community was good. There were some great things. Schools. Yeah. Um, yeah. hospitals. Oh my God. Yeah. That's how, that's yeah. how a community thrives. That's- Fixing up the, the community. Right. You know, it was, it was all, it was a lot of it was good stuff. You know, they, they might've done it in incorrect ways, yeah. throwing people out. <laughs> Not good. Not good. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a lot of people commented, uh, in the articles and stuff about how nice their properties were yeah. and how, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. But which was something if- that wasn't, um, always accessible for right people of color people, people and this this type of community yeah yeah 
Yeah, if only his ego hadn't gotten in the way. Oh, yeah. boy, that darn ego again. Yeah. Yep, does it every time. I wish I had one. <laughs> Maybe I could be amazing someday. I don't know. If only I had the, only uh, I did. <laughs> the, uh, the confidence of a... Of a mediocre uh, white man. White oh, man. my God. Yeah. The, the length, the heights I could go. Um, well, uh, so that's it for the story. Check the sources if you want to know more. Now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. Mm -hmm. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right, y'all. Um, our tips are empty. <laughs> so, our tip bag is running low. So you all, <laughs> if you have some tips, we would love to um, love for you to share them with us. In the meantime, take care of yourselves so you don't want to murder others. Now, <laughs> let's get into the shout out portion of the show where we shout out any content by or about <laughs> any people of color, othered, marginalized folks, and any true crime goodies. Oh my God, I have so many. I, I'm i sorry. Okay. First of all, The Monster Podcast. It's from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia. It's about a serial killer, pedophile, and kidnapper in Belgium. Yeah, he kidnapped two people at a time. In, oh, geez. Kidnapped them in doubles. And the things he did, he kidnapped young girls. But what is really bad is that the police in Belgium were the messiest of hoes. Oh, no. And the messy hoedness allowed this motherfucker to continue his crimes for a very long time. Oh, geez. Um, and uh, it is called, it is known as the Dutro Affair. Have you heard of this, OG? No, I have not. Oh, my God. It's like red velvet cake for my ears. I also... <laughs> I want to shout out Alaska Daily, starring Hillary Swank, about a reporter who works to uncover a cold case of a murdered and missing indigenous woman oh, in Alaska wow. with the help of a really diverse cast. And all, they're oh. all they're coming in hot with the this is racist. If this little girl was white, she would have been found. Oh, wow. Very oh my cool. God. It's really, really good. What do you got? And where, what's that playing? Oh, on? it's on Hulu. Hulu. Okay, cool, cool, cool. That's good. So I wanted to shout out the movie All the Old Knives on Amazon Prime. Wait a minute. It's what? Um what I've not, I don't think I've heard of this at all. Oh really? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a movie on Amazon Prime. It stars Chris Pine. My favorite of the famous Chris's. <laughs> but also Tandy Newton and oh, Lawrence yeah. Fishburne. Oh! Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is so exciting. Okay. (laughs) Something else you'll like about it. It's about two spies. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Two spies who have a romantic history together. And uh, I thought it was going to be a sort of Mr. and Mrs. Smith type of situation. Uh So I didn't... didn't want I mean when it first came out I was like eh, I don't know mm-hmm. but I ended up watching it and it turned out to be more of a love story wrapped in a mystery so oh I really enjoyed it oh. I liked it uh, well yeah I love Chris Pine because he is one of those white actors some white actors won't do like love scenes with black women or really yeah and Chris That's Pine fucked up. Chris Pine is one who he is on screen with women of color 
a lot, maybe not a lot, but uh, enough for me to appreciate and treats them like human beings. And it's just, I, I that's why he's my favorite, Chris. Wow. <laughs> well, he's got beautiful eyes. Oh my God. I have to say I that. I will yeah. leave my husband right now. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to say that Spooked is back for October. Oh! If you want to listen to something spooky. Oh, so. I love Spooked. That's a podcast. Spooked. Okay. It's so good. So let's, those are again Le Monstre, uh, wherever you get your podcast, um, Alaska Daily on Hulu, and all the old knives on Amazon Prime, as well as Spooked is back for October, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh man, that's it. No more script, no more story. Look under the bed. Dang it. All right. Well, until next time, Beth, where can the people find us? <laughs> our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right, ghouls and goblins. This is a <laughs> weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. 
In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.